hey. Uh, welcome to Taj Talam. I'm here with the man himself, Taj. Taj. And I'm here with T. <laughs> so what's up, Taj? Uh, what do you want to talk about uh, today? Nothing much. I think we're just, uh, you know, starting a podcast. Oh, yeah, first episode. Welcome. Episode one. And uh, what time did we start? <laughs> I think it was uh, 20 after four. Oh, oh, what an auspicious number. So... How did we uh, think about the, getting this idea started? Oh, yeah. So I know, you know, a couple of weeks ago you were talking about, uh, you know, the presidential candidacy. And, you know, I was taking that kind of position that a lot of people take, which is, you know, too many candidates. I'm just going to wait till, you know, the field gets like winnowed out. But then you had, you know, one a candidate in mind in particular that you felt very strongly about. So uh, I'm kind of curious. So, in you know, that was uh, Andrew Yang. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. how'd you hear about Andrew Yang? Uh, actually, uh, I saw him in an article mm. and I think it was either a Forbes article or a fortune article. Or I can't remember, but it was like, oh, Andrew Yang, first Asian, you know, American running on the democratic platform or something like that. And I was mm. like, uh, okay, you know, we'll see what happens afterwards. And it was like, what, like March or something of this year, mm. which is uh, another ridiculous thing. How, why presidential candidates have to announce in like 20 it, and he announced in 2017, you know? Oh, you're kidding. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not. And so um, I didn't really think about it until then I saw him come up on Joe Rogan's podcast. Mm. And I said, whoa, like, I, I, I'm, I'm curious. So I listened to him and, uh, you know, he's running on three basic platforms. But main platform is this thing called uh, UBI, Universal Basic Income. Uh, UBI, that sounds like uh, UTI. <laughs> <laughs> the gift that just keeps on giving. Yeah, I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like this could be the opposite of UTI. <laughs> okay, I, I do explain. So what, for uh, for myself and for our, our, our one listener? Uh <laughs> <laughs> you mean my wife? <laughs> um which, uh, let me shout out to her, Wendy. You know, she's at home with uh, our baby, our new baby. And uh, she's uh, very wonderful in uh, letting me do this. So I want to thank her. Oh, thank you, Wendy. <laughs> but um, so anyways, so uh, UBI or what um, Andrew Yang calls it, freedom dividend, uh, is basically this notion that uh, everybody has, should have a, a, a basic income that allows for them to cover their basic needs like food and basic housing, um, you know, um, and the best part about UBI is uh, there's no strings attached. Uh, it's basically just, hey, this is money for you. You do whatever you want with it. Okay, so it's a thousand bucks a month from the government, no strings attached. Yeah, sounds good. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, why not, right? Why not? <laughs> um, and so, you know, on the surface of it, you're just thinking like, ah, you know, that's, uh, you hear people, that's socialism. That's going to be just, you know, what are you going to do with that? People are going to be lazy and all that stuff. Um, but really, uh, you have to listen to the explanation of it. Uh, I feel like the, I wasn't completely convinced until he explained it the way um, he was uh, kind of looking at it. And um, so let's kind of backtrack and just talk about UBI in general. Okay. What uh, what the target of UBI is, is to prevent uh, is to prevent people from losing their jobs due to automation. 
Uh, how, how does UBI prevent people from losing jobs? Uh, well, not a rephrase, not prevent, but act, act, provide a cushion for that. Mm. So uh, as you know, there's gonna be, you know, there's computers, AI, robots, self-driving cars. Uh, that's gonna replace a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people's uh, jobs are gonna go, are gonna be obsolete. I mean, you, you go to your nearest, uh, you know, grocery store like Ralph's, you know, there's a bunch of checkout, self-checkout stations. Mm. Um, you go to, Am I, just January, I went to Seattle and I went to the first Amazon Go um, okay. grocery or grocery store, I guess. Uh, and you just walk in and you walk out. Nobody working there at the cashier. Everything is uh, charged to your phone, your Amazon account, and uh, no reason for an employee to be there. How did they stop people from stealing stuff? I don't know. <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, it's Jeff Bezos. He knows everything about you, you know? Well, you know, he's got enough money. So. Oh, yeah. Well, half of what he used to have. Well, him and McKinsey have enough money. Uh, that's, true, that? that's true. That's true. That's <laughs> true. And uh, so basically, you know, I went to Amazon Go and I, um, one, you can, once you scan in, you can scan two people. In. So uh, my Wendy it. and I went in and uh, it says, uh, I read, I read the description and each they they know they'll they'll track you and you can anybody can pick it pick up food or, or the items so i had wendy pick up some items i had picked up some items i we interchanged and one of us put one item back and she kept the items and then we just kept doing that just for fun mm. walked out and knew exactly what we had in our hands oh you know i have a buddy of mine who works on uh his startup does like video recognition software and so uh yeah you're absolutely right they have that technology where they can recognize who you are by your face and then they can see what products you're taking and so there's no way you're stealing from jeff bezos yeah <laughs> he's not the richest man in the world on accident yeah you know? i feel like he's stealing from us uh, you know perhaps perhaps well no you know what i have to bring it back to that hey you know what he's providing a value. No, he is. You he know, is. The, I love the, Jeff. Jeff, if you're listening, I love you. I mean, come on. I, I think like, I, I'm old school. I don't want to say old school. I feel dated when I do that. Hey, we're the same age. Because <laughs> hey, you just revealed yourself. Uh, but, but you know, I, I, it took me a while to get onto Amazon. You know, cause oh, how come? I'm, I'm more of a kind of guy that when I want something, I want it right now. Mm. You know, when I try out some clothes, I want to try it out there and I then see. see how it looks before I buy it. And then if I don't like it, I can, you know, just drop it. I don't, I don't have to worry about returning and all that stuff. You know, ain't nobody got time for that. Uh, so it's not just, you're not necessarily against Amazon. You're, you were against all online shopping. Yeah. It was more of a shopping experience. I wouldn't say experience is just me. I, when I want something, I want it now. Got it. Then I got into Amazon. I mean, it's just a slow, it's, it's a slow thing. They just like, he just reels you in. And then I, I was like, I won't sign up for Prime. Signed up for Prime. I'm like, oh, you know what? Uh, Prime, you know, I'm probably going to save some money on shipping. Later on, found out I don't save anything on shipping. <laughs> you know how you save money on Prime? You get your buddy to add you as like his cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> Jeff, if you're listening, wait, wait, stop wait, listening. Wait, 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 Nate, give me your account, <laughs> <Yeah>. man. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's basically that's, uh, and then and then after that, even with that fact, knowing that I don't save money, I mean, it's not everything, but there are a few products where you don't save money if you're on Prime. They actually charge you more to cover the cost. Mm. I still go on Amazon all the time. 
You know what you remind me of? You ever see that meme? It's like uh, two pictures of Drake, you know, from that one music video, Hotline Bling. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's just like $6.99 for shipping. No, but like $6.99 more expensive free shipping. Yeah. Yes. You know? yes. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I say that to my wife all the time. She's like, I never pay for shipping. And she would do that. She would say, it's as $45 no ship uh and you have to add shipping to it she wouldn't buy it but 50 dollars and free shipping she would get it you know i mean he he knows how to game our minds you know he knows the psychology of the consumer and so when we were at the amazon go store there was actually an employee walking around uh randomly and you know she's he's stalking things mm. and but at the same time stalking you ah, <laughs> uh, well and then and basically what happens is he would just ask me like oh do you need any help do you know how to use this and i'm like yeah that's fine and he's just really smiley friendly dude and in the back of my mind i go dude this store is replacing you and you're happily working here no, I mean, that's, uh, but, you know, you bring up a good point. I mean, that's that's the whole reason why, you know, we need UBI uh, or the Freedom Dividend. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> because you're right. Uh, you know, these machines, uh, it's robot apocalypse, as people have been calling it. You know, they come for our jobs. Um, um, and I think with uh, basically what he's saying is, uh, you know, that whole Paul Bunyan story, you know, his just, putting on the railroad and he's competing with a with a a, robe, a a machine that's not paul bunyan oh i'm sorry who was that guy Ooh, but you know uh, what you know I that know story about about yeah. and then he died at the end beating the machine or something mm, like that mm -hmm. yeah that paul bunyan is the guy. <laughs> that's the big guy with the big like ox you know i'm gonna say we're going into climate change is that the topic we're talking about just randomly pulling out america <laughs> yeah. oh uh paul revere right <laughs> no but basically uh what uh so, so, and everybody's like, oh, technology is going to end everything. But so far in our history, that's never happened. You know, re, uh, uh, technology has replaced jobs and displaced jobs, but then new jobs are created because of that. So a lot of people say, hey, what's the point of UBI? That jobs are going to always going to be created with new technology. So uh, Andrew Yang, um, and so that's why I wasn't really convinced with this argument. Mm. Until Andrew Yang says uh, came and I listened to the podcast and he's not talking about uh, automation replacing all jobs. He's talking about the pace of replacement. I see. And if you have these robots and automation and this technology replacing people at such a fast rate, people don't have time to 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 change to other vocations to change to other. Um, jobs or uh, other means of earning income, uh, that's going to cause a lot of turmoil. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of what's happening in, with Waymo in Arizona. Waymo. Oh, is that the self-driving car? Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, people in Arizona are crazy, dude. Yeah, I hear they're fucking those cars up, man. Oh, yeah, they're pulling guns at those on those cars. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think there's a safety issue. People feel like, hey, these, these things are taking over. Because, you know, like... Um, just like kind of like that 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 counterculture uh, thing about Starbucks, you know. Now you mm. see so many Starbucks, you almost like, oh, why are these Starbucks coming? I think there's a part of that, but then there's also a part of the fear of the uh, of the technology. Like, I hey, see. how I don't want to be driving in the, on the street with with one of those cars because one of those cars actually did kill a pedestrian. 
No, that's true. Uh, but, you know, but I will say, though, that the media is conflating this because, you know, obviously more people, more car, human drivers kill more people, you know, at a higher mm-hmm. rate. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, autonomous vehicles aren't perfect. But I think by and large, uh, as the technology improves, they're going to be better than human drivers. Uh, we once you said the, the media and I feel like we can go down another <laughs> long conversation but you're right like for example when tesla's autopilot thing went off mm. and killed a person now elon responded in a very very in robotic way he was like that's one out of how many people that's driving yeah, auto and and it's like oh man but you know he's he's citing a statistic you know hey it's one person out of how many people who drive versus all the people who get killed from driving in human operated cars, you know? Yeah. And Andrew Yang says, basically, you know, you can't stop this. You know, there is a moral argument uh, about these technologies because on average, um, I've never checked this statistic. So um, he says there's 4,000 deaths due to, due to truck drivers, I I think. Um, And basically uh, uh, robot uh, self-driving trucks would pretty much eliminate all that. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about the, the autom- autonomous trucks, so what I've been hearing is how the technology is advancing. Like, when they're on just, like, the interstate, like, cruising, then full computer, like, it's just a robot driving it. But then once they go into a city, because it's so unpredictable, they're going to have almost like a drone pilot before a truck driving, like, in a simulator with, like, video mm. screens around him. Mm. And so it's actually a human being that's going to be, like, piloting it uh, within urban areas, uh, at least in the beginning. Um, so I was talking to this guy who um, was uh, uh, he was renting a place and and he I, I asked him and he's a truck driver hmm. and I said hey like and he he drives his truck around Corona okay Eastvale um, which if you know Corona or Eastvale that's a place in Southern California where Amazon just opened well not just but they opened up a really large distribution center I see huge. And uh, when I heard I, when I saw him and I and I heard that he was a truck driver and I said, "Hey, aren't you afraid of this uh, truck driving? Uh, this uh, the self driving uh, trucks?" He goes, "Ah, yeah, no, you know that's not going to happen for another twenty years." I see. And I go, "Oh, interesting. Like it's really interesting how he pushes it back." Then, um, but I, I kind of understood what he was saying because he doesn't do the long distance. He says the long distance drivers are going to be affected by this. Mm. He drives around the city. I see. So he picks up. Uh, from Amazon Distribution Center, and then he drops it off in other distribution centers in the city where uh, you it. can't have a self because you, it's just the laws don't allow self-driving vehicles at that at this moment yet. Uh, plus the complexity, you know, uh, like the way AI learns, like machine learning, it's not like a human being. You know, like I heard this example where it's like, say you're going to teach your son, you know, like uh, what a dog is. You know, you show him two dogs, like he gets it. You know, but a computer. Like, you got to show them, like, millions of pictures of dogs, and eventually it'll, like, be able to, like, identify every single dog. Mm. And I think similarly with the self-driving kind of tech, you know, you know, remember when we learned how to drive, you know, some, for me, it was some Chinese guy sitting next to me, like a Corolla, but. (laughs) Hey, same here. (laughs) And then he had the pedals, too, so, you know, I was like, why is this car stopping, you know, but, um, but, you know, machines, they just have to, they have to log so many different hours, so Mm. I think, um, to that guy's point, I can see him, you know, his, his rationale. Uh, but at the same token, uh, you know, I think, uh, and did you read that McKinsey report that like in uh, their estimate is it within 10 years by 2030, um, McKinsey, uh, MIT, 
that's when they're saying this kind of robot apocalypse is going to come to fruition. Right. Uh, I've heard statistics something like 80% of all jobs are going to be automated away. Mm -hmm. uh, and to your earlier point, you know, like perhaps AI will, you know, lead this new renaissance where all these new jobs are being created. But if within the next 10 years we're losing 80% of all jobs, like we're not going to be able to replace it at that kind of rate. Exactly. It's the rate of replacement that he's concerned about. And um, if you just think about uh, just, you know, you and I, you know, like if like I'm a I'm a I'm an accountant mm. and I already see on QuickBooks, which is an accounting software most people use. Okay. If you're a business owner, you can you, you kind of know you have experience with that. Uh now they automatically download transactions for you. I see. And they automatically get keywords because you're when they download it from the bank, the bank puts some keywords on there and you know who mm. it's charged to. And it automatically gives, you know, sets, okay, this is a, you know, meal and entertainment expense. Mm. And all you have to do is just click okay. Mm. That's automating a, a huge part of our job. You know, you reminded me of something I heard recently, like even say financial news, like Bloomberg, it's actually not designed for human beings to read. It's designed for machines to read. And so, you know, what, what takes us a whole morning to catch up on like stocks, machine does it in like fraction of a second. Mm -hmm. And so to your point, yeah, you're right. You know, it's not just blue collar jobs that are going to be disappearing, but white collar jobs, mm -hmm. you know, and if anything, it's the jobs where it's just some dude in front of a computer that are the most vulnerable. Um, and a lot of people think that they're, uh, jobs are immune to it, but if you think about it, like legal Zoom, true, yeah, the low legal legal uh, entry level legal work, you're absolutely right. Even entry level level coding work, I've heard of that. Now I don't know coding that well. I've I've done it in college, oh, and that's why I don't do coding anymore because <laughs> <laughs> I suck at it. <laughs> but um, yeah, but I, I that's what I hear. Like low level coding job, low level, a lot of things are going to be automated away really quick. And if you think about what, how things are now, we're in Southern California, we're in LA, uh, the greater Los Angeles area. So we know how expensive things are. That's true. And uh, the, what the current statistic is 78% of people uh, can't afford a $400 expense or 60% of people. And that number is worse for, for millennials. Yeah, you know, because we're kind of against we. I mean, we are millennials. Uh, although I, I, I don't like, like to say senior millennials. <laughs> yeah, I don't like senior in front of anything. Ah. <laughs> um, but I, I will say though, but millennials are notorious for uh, not wanting to own things, uh, for foregoing materialism a bit to kind of like follow your bliss. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the next. It's a, so to your point, I think you're right. We're actually more vulnerable uh, to uh, kind of these financial hiccups. Uh, than previous generations. And, you know, I think that's one way to look at it. But at another way, another way is that's just the uh, a product of our environment. You know, we we have to be unmaterialistic because we can't afford to be materialistic. You know, I've, I've heard that argument. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, to, to just push back on that a little bit, they say Gen Z, though, much more materialistic. Ah, uh, like well, they're, they're big on home ownership. They're big on, like, getting that money. So... I, I think perhaps it's just like a reaction, mm -hmm. you know. Um, Maybe I'm Gen Z. <laughs> hey, Jack, you do pretty well for yourself. Uh, yeah, you do, you do, you do. Well, I mean, uh, the thing is, uh, I think you, I've gotten myself into careers where it was very labor intensive. Mm. It required a lot of human interactions. Mm. Um, but I'm seeing people moving away from it. 
You know what I mean? Um, like, okay, so my other line of business is health insurance. Okay. <clears throat> and with health insurance, I deal with a lot of people who are much older. Mm. You know, they're in, they're usually Medicare aged. Mm. So they are used to having people. I see. No, but you bring up a good point. So one of the industries that's very uh, kind of resistant to automation is the healthcare industry. Uh, because you're right. It's a lot of one-on-one uh, communi- uh, one-on-one interactions. Uh, they want that kind of human touch. You know, they call it the bedside manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, yeah, you know, but at the same time, you know, it, it's not necessarily a guarantee either. Um, they have these like comfort robots they're designing in like of all places, Japan, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're just... What kind of comforts do they take well, care of? Well, you know, <laughs> there's actually, I could just quite, there's that kind of comfort. You're right. But what I'm referring to is there's like, uh, once they're de- de- designing for like Alzheimer's patients, like old people, because, you know, as a human being, you know, like it, it's tough to kind of interact with someone uh, who has Alzheimer's, you know, because, you know, you're kind of having the same conversation over and over again. Uh, and so this way, um, you know, these old people who don't have a lot of money, uh, but who need that kind of like almost rote uh, interaction, uh, they appreciate, you know, these kind of robots. Um, I'm glad you, you brought that up because um, that's going to be one of the major concerns in the future. That's why healthcare, you know, anybody you talk to who's a nurse and stuff like that, and, you know, they usually have a very stable job and that's going to, they're going to keep, uh, they're, they're, they have a lot of job security. And, but one main concern is affordability. You know, these seniors, uh, these uh, Medicare recipients, eventually they're not going to be affor- able to afford somebody actually, you know, caring for them 24 hours a day. So robots are going to be the answer for that. And with these robots, uh, I heard it's actually pretty funny. So they programmed, they, they thought a lot, done a lot of thinking on these robots they programmed these robots to be suggestive rather than command commanding. Like, hey, you need to take your medication. Who wants a robot that tells you what to do? Yeah, that's true. So it's more like, hey, time for your medication. Would you like to take your medication? Oh, no, not right now. Then it'll remind you again in five more minutes and another five minutes. And then it'll read, understand your hap- behavior. And it'll be like, oh... He's usually uh, he usually wants to take his medications after the nine o'clock news. Oh, he's in a mood right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, that's uh, it's insane how and um, and from our generation, we're like, yeah, that's we accept, we embrace it, we embrace it. Uh, you know, to be honest, I personally I don't. I don't Ooh. like talking to Siri. You know, Ooh. like because I I just can't get it out of my head that this is just a machine. Like this isn't a real person. You know, I, I feel almost ridiculous talking to my phone. Oh, okay, okay. I mean, are you someone that talks to Alexa, talks to Google, talks to Siri? Yeah, I don't do any of that. Mm. But have you seen that Google uh thing where it's the assistant that makes helps you make appointments and stuff like that? No, true. I mean, I can't. You know what? You know who I think likes that stuff? Like older people. You know who? It's like they're kind of skipping a generation in technology it's kind of like those third world countries that never had landlines but now everyone has a cell phone Mm, mm, Um, yes yes and i think it's the same thing you know i grew up like loving computers i love the keyboard i love the mouse you know but you know someone like my mom like she was terrible at the keyboard and the mouse but like the moment like these touchscreen stuff you know started becoming in vogue like bam she's you know she's on the phone she's on the ipad she's taking photos with the ipad you know um yeah you know with my mom with the uh there's the uh, typing function, right? Mm. And she can't, you can't, it's really hard to type in Mandarin. Mm. So there's the o- other option where you where you write. I see. But my mom hasn't written Mandarin for so long, so it's really hard for her to remember certain words and how to write mm. it. So now she just prefers to just speak it, you know, and she just speaks to the phone and tells it what to do. 
No, and I and yeah, I mean that's where I think technology, like you know, automation, we call it robot apocalypse. Like it's just, it's just a bad thing, but it's actually a really good thing. You know, like for example, like I do all my reading on like this iPad now, uh, and you know, one I switched to like some paper books recently because I've been kind of visiting libraries, and I noticed like man, like I don't know what that word means. Like I gotta now type it into my phone, you know, versus mm. like Kindle, just highlight that and then boom, and so. You know, I love these advancements, and so that's where, and I think most people do, and so that's why, like, you know, I don't want to, I don't think it's good for us to kind of paint this robot, and this, you know, this feature of automation is only a bad thing. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of pros, but I think it needs to be kind of balanced with something, and I really love the the UBI angle, you know. So, so let me ask you, uh, I know when I talked to you about UBI, what was your first initial reaction? So my first initial reaction, like, uh, I'm almost ashamed to admit it, but I, <laughs> I guess, you know, I've just been indoctrinated with this, like, strict dad philosophy where it's like, free money, that's wrong. Like, you got to work for your money, you know, like, this is immoral, you know. But then I had to pause and I thought, like, yeah, what's so, like, beautiful and moral and ethical about, like, slaving away at a job that's, like, really kind of rote? You know, like that doesn't lead to hurt human flourishing. That doesn't improve your character, you know. So, and also you look at the data, you know, this is something where sometimes, um, you know, this is what I like about Andrew Yang. He's not an ideologue. He's not like, he doesn't have some kind of like philosophy about how the world should work. He looks at the data. He's like, hey, look, you know, we, we all have that strict dad kind of philosophy. But if you look at the data, you know, people who, you know, are given support, they don't use it for like blowing hookers, you know, they use it for, you know, like paying down a debt, you know, or like medical bills, you know, even right now, like the family that Angie Yang is actually supporting a thousand dollars a month for for a year in Iowa. It's like uh, a guy with like a single mom and like his mom, a like, guy with a single mom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He like, he, you know, uh, he lives in Iowa. He's like a uh, an IT like tech dude. He does like concert stuff for, like Marilyn Manson and things like that. And, like, you know, he has this great career I'm sure he's passionate about. But then his mom got diagnosed with, like, this cancer. And so she can't work. And then he has to try to support her. But then, you know, healthcare in this country, it's not free. And so it's a really tough spot he's in. And then now when Andrew Yang, as a candidate, is just going to give him $1,000 of his own personal money, it's something where it's like, oh, wow, like, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to go, you know, get drunk, stop working? No. I'm going to help, like, either free up more of my time so I can spend with my mom or I'm going to help pay down these medical bills. <coughs> And I think, you know, that's why I just feel like that strict dad mentality, like it, it's very kind of hurtful and it's very kind of hateful. You know, it's like viewing other people as like 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 imbeciles or like very irresponsible or lazy or lazy, which I, I, I think that the vast majority of people are not, you know. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are those kind of bad apples, you know, but they're going to be bad apples with UBI or not. And so I think for just normal everyday folk who, you know, kind of, you know, hit a few hiccups, you know, something like UBI is a great kind of like buffer or safety net. Because what we know about life is it's full of hiccups. No, yeah, very true. Yeah, shit goes wrong all the time, you know. And so, and I think, you know, I heard this, uh, it was like an interview with, you know, some like, uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I I don't want to be derogative when I use this term, uh, this hillbilly, uh, but I only <laughs> use it because it's from this article about the hillbilly elegy, you know, that book. Mm -hmm. And um, he was just talking about how like, man, like it's, you can't make any more mistakes anymore, you know? And, you know, he really feels like, I think he's trying to get over like some kind of drug addiction and he realizes how hard it is. Cause once you have like something on your record, you know, companies don't want to hire you. And, you know, you know, this country, it doesn't really have a lot of stories about like redemption. And so it's actually really hard to kind of pick yourself back up. 
And so that's why something like UBI, I think it gives people like a path forward. It gives people like hope rather than just kind of like despair. Um, and so I, and I also think it's much better than the other options that like currently exist, like welfare, for example, you know, because, you know, welfare creates this kind of negative incentive to stop working, you know, because the moment you start earning more than a certain amount, boom, you know, like you lose that welfare. So any, we, we're all self-interested actors. And so, you know, we're, 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 it just, we're not going to work, you know, versus UBI. Hey, it doesn't matter if you earn, if Jeff Bezos earning 120 billion or if you're unemployed uh, couch surfing, you're each getting a thousand dollars. From a creative's perspective. Mm. Oh, I'm going to, I want to bring it back to the, what we were talking about, about the welfare program. Got but, it. but before I come back to that, I want to ask you, you know, since we're talking about the podcast, uh, from a creative's perspective, what do you think? How do you think that UBI is going to help? Yeah, so, you know, I actually studied film in undergraduate, um, and many of my friends did. And so I realized, you know, when we first graduated, uh, you know, everyone was full of all these ideas, like, man, I want to make this film, you know, like, oh, I want to go, you know, like, you know, write, be in a band or whatever. But, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't come from a lot of privilege, uh, neither did many of my friends. So it's like, well, we actually have to work and make a living. And, you know, we, we kind of held on to this fantasy that, oh, if we were able to, you know, after work, you know, write on that script and whatever, whatever. And it's a beautiful notion. Like, I really respect that spirit of like And hustle. then real life sets in. No, but you're damn right. You know, like, because what, you know, what, you're going to stop exercising. You're going to stop having a social life, you know. And, you know, there's some people that do attempt to do that. And you're going to stop paying your car loan. You're exactly. going to stop paying your uh, student loan debt. No, no, exactly. And then, you know, I can kind of see that now the strict debt argument comes in. Well, well, you know, if you can't afford it, then you shouldn't do it. Well, you know, where, where does that lead us systematically, though? It leads us to then the arts are just like a plaything for those with privilege. And so, you know, you only get one perspective then. And so if you're only getting one perspective in the media and the perspective of privilege, I mean, all of history is just a history of kind of rich people with privilege. And so... <laughs> You know, now that we have kind of this democratized platform like YouTube, like podcasting, it's really kind of opened up the potential, you know, for normal everyday folks such as you and I to kind of engage with people and to have our voices heard. But at the same time, we still need time, you know, like, uh, you know, we still need time to both research, record this, you know, this even renting this space is costing money. And so, you know, something like UBI, it's a thousand bucks a month. You know, it's it's not a lot of money. But it's enough money to say do something like this, you know. And I think uh, to your credit, you also said about uh, pulling your resources together. Oh yeah, true. Yep. So in you know in a, a uh, for that one person listening, uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Wendy. Yeah. Wendy. So when me and Jack were talking, um, <laughs> you know, we uh, I kind of put forward this idea of like, hey, you know, one thousand a month for one person, like it's not a lot of money. Like you can't really even get an apartment here in Los Angeles for a thousand dollars a month. Yeah. At least not one you want to live in. And but if you start pulling like friends together, like say I get like two other buddies and we have like three thousand dollars a month. Yeah, we can get an apartment, you know, maybe not, like not the best part of town, but like, you know, somewhere in the fifteen hundred dollar range, perhaps. Uh, and then, you know, with that extra money, we have we have the living, uh, the shelter kind of taken care of. And then we can with that extra five hundred bucks kind of subsist. And then that then frees up tons of bandwidth. But that's assuming we're not working, you know. Everyone are, is already moving toward the gig economy. And so this kind of allows a lot of flexibility. It's like, okay, I at least have a roof over my head. At least I can eat. And yeah, it's top ramen, you know, but it's not the best. But, 
you know, with the remaining time I have, maybe I spend 20 hours kind of doing gig I mean, stuff. I Top Ramen is pretty good. Hey, you know, you know what I like instead of Top Ramen? I like the, uh, you know, you can upgrade a little bit rather than 10 cents a pack, maybe go up to like 20 cents. Ooh. And then, you know, you can get some of that Korean stuff, like ah, the Korean Shin Ramen. The Shin Ramen. Boom. <laughs> it's sponsored by Korean Shin Ramen. <laughs> Put some cheese on it. Oh, God. Oh, you're getting fancy. You know, that, that's, that's putting the cost up to a 50 oh. cent bowl. I mean, look at this fat cat, you know? You are Gen Z. You're so Gen Z. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, let me ask you, like, how many, if you want to go lean, mm. if you want to make a film, mm-hmm. how many people would be involved? That's a good question. You know, like, I haven't made a film in ages. But I did make a film when I first graduated uh, within, like, the first year or so. And I just pulled together all my friends, you know. And I think it cost me at the time roughly around, like, $1,500 out of pocket. Like, and how many people, though? Oh, gosh. It was, like, cinematographer, set designer, uh... Uh, a friend produ- helped produce it, uh, myself, uh, definitely four of my friends at the minimum. And then I uh, got some randos from Craigslist to act in it. So about like maybe three or four of those people. So, I mean, roughly 10. So if you get 10 people who are passionate about a project, mm. that's, that's $10,000 $10, a, a month. month. Oh, yeah. That's $120,000 a year. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you guys all have your full-time jobs and you guys have this resources, can you do a pretty good film with uh for $120,000? Oh yeah, no, definitely. I mean, especially, you know, we all have like this great, you know, supercomputer sitting in our pockets. Like, you know, I just got the the new iPhone and, you know, the camera on it's great, you know. Ooh, so, yeah. like more than adequate. Um as a matter of fact, one of the, the cameras recording with your iPhone. Oh yeah, when you see the two shot, that shot on an iPhone. Oh, shot, shot on, on iPhone. iPhone. Oh, yeah, we got to do that on the commercial, <laughs> dude. <laughs> all these sponsors, please <laughs> send us the checks, you know. <laughs> Arrowhead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't really like the taste uh, of it. <laughs> Kirkland. <laughs> <The negative> spot. <laughs> um, but uh, kind of, uh, did you have anything else you want to finish? Oh, on like the artistic angle. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you know what's so interesting? So I go to this uh, Zen Buddhist meditation center uh, on Saturday mornings. And, you know, I was actually talking to one of the workers there. And uh, he's a cool dude. Like, so he's maybe a little older than me. Uh, he's originally from Nashville. He owned like two restaurants there, like, like worked his ass off, but then, you know, he found out, you know, this kind of pursuit was a little empty for him. Like, you know, I mean, restaurants are just like, you gotta, you know, you have no life. It, it takes a lot of work. And so he ended up moving to LA with the intention to become like a chaplain. Uh, but then he found like Zen Buddhism and then he started like helping out this Zen Buddhist meditation center. And then now he's like the one kind of like full-time employee, but he doesn't get paid any money. All he does is he just gets to live in the center for free and when I say center, it's just a house. <laughs> it's like a small house in Silver Lake that's just been converted. And he gets to live there for free. Uh, you know, I think he collects some form of like food stamps or something to kind of cover certain needs. Uh, but he spends like more than 60 hours a week, you know, uh, unpaid uh, other than the room and board uh, to, you know, cook meals, to do all like the back end stuff, you know, just to manage the center. So he's not lazy. Not at all. And, you know, but because of him, you know, like I and others have like this great space where we can kind of like decompress, uh, we can meditate, uh, we can hear about teachings, you know, we can find a community. And so he's really doing a service. And this center, you know, no one's getting paid. You know, it's all volunteer based and all our donations are just helping like just to keep the lights on. But he was sharing today that like, you know, if it's donation based, like, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of forecast financially. And so it's something where, like, man, like, every, like, he's been doing it for two years now. And he's like, man, like, you know, he still has anxiety about it. He's like, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to do this, you know. And I think it's something where they brought up this interesting point. Like, 
this donation model originally comes from uh, Japan. That's where Zen Buddhism uh, was from. Uh, you know, d- Japan influenced by China. Um, and so they were saying that there is a, a kind of cultural tradition in Japan of having like mendicants or like beggars, you know, like who are monks. And so, you know, the whole community who, who does benefit from like their service kind of donates. But you can't really do that here in the West. You know, if, you know, he starts walking around with a bowl like begging. You know, I mean, yes, we do have, you know, uh, you know, mendicants. You know, we, we have homeless people who ask for money here. But, you know, they're treated largely with a lot of contempt, you know, and it's something where it's not seen. It's a seen as like an option of a last resort. It's not seen as like a way to like forsake materialism. It, it's more so seen as like, oh, you've fallen on hard times mm-hmm. and you need to get out of it. And you know, once again, the strict dad kind of philosophy of like, oh, you fucked up your life somehow. You're a drug addict. Like, I don't want to help you. Like, if I give you money, you're just going to use it on drugs or whatever. And so, you know, just because that philosophy exists, you know, what options, you know, does someone who, like that guy who runs the meditation center, really have? You know, and that's where something like, uh, and that's how we don't see a lot of things like these meditation centers, you know, because, you know, who it, to ask someone to take that kind of huge financial risk with like zero like security or stability. I mean, that guy's got to be a saint, you know, and that's why I really like I really respect that guy. But if that it requires like saints in order to, you know, have any kind of like spiritual community now, uh, you know, it, it's tough. And, you know, you look at the Christian model, which is more like prof- professionalized like clergy. And that brings its own, like, full host of problems. You know, like, we used to have a pastor who had some kind of, like, titanium bike that was, like, five to $10,000. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm just like, what the fuck? I did not know that. When you told me that, I was like, yeah, he's a bike. He's a cool guy. He's a great pastor. And you're like, dude, that bike is, like, $10,000. I was like, what the fuck? Like, He's taking that money from the church, like yeah, yeah, but yeah by far most people in the church do not uh, cannot afford a ten thousand dollar bike, and so it turns into this like monstrosity where like a pastor is seen as like a CEO, you know, because he oversees this organization, and that's a terrible analog, you know, for a pastor. You know, if anything, the pastor should be showing us how to free ourselves from this materialism, not like how to really live in it, you know, like. Uh, I mean, that, that that sounds kind of funny, but you know what I mean? But how to like kind of be the most materialistic person that is, you know? And it's something where I just feel like that's where you get like, I mean, I, mean, I only say that because that's where you get pastors who, uh, I think there's this famous case where the guy's like, oh, God told me I need a private jet. So come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, God didn't tell you that. You know? Left behind. No. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, I think uh, it, it really changes your thinking. Right. He, once you go, oh, whoa, now I have a thousand dollars a month. Like you start become very resourceful. You uh, I mean, you can probably meditate better. Well, what it is, is you have options, number one. And number two, you just have less of that stress of like uh, financial pressure. You know, like they've done studies where this kind of scarcity mentality, um, it's like it actually lowers your IQ one whole standard deviation. Mm-hmm. And so when that happens, you're a lot more susceptible to, like, really hateful rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, make America great again. Or whatever, you know? But, you know, it's like the immigrants that are fucking shit up, you know. And it's just something where, you know, that that's the whole reason, you know, why, uh, you know, I feel like our political discourse is getting worse, you know, because, um, you know, it's not just, you know, one person, but it's like many people who are now, like, they're like doom locusts, you know, like they're really profiting from, you know, this, this sense of kind of despair that people have, you know, 
Because like these, you know, because now there's like professional polemicists, you know, where, you know, I can go out there and just spread the most like hateful fucking rhetoric. And if it connects to people who are having a hard time, then they're going to like watch my videos. I collect more ad revenue. And so, you know, what, what, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, that was. Infowars. Well, true. You know, I mean, I haven't actually watched too much of that. So I don't want to bash Alex. I'm not bashing him, but I'm just um, saying like, that's, that's kind of the effect of it. But, you know, but you're right in the sense that it rewards, like, the most sensational, you know, kind of shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, the most kind of hateful kind of stuff. I mean, it happens on both parties. Like, I don't want to just kind of, like, diss the right here. No, like, you're right. You're, you're completely right on that. Because, you know, I talk to my friends about about po- uh, politics and issues and stuff like that. And, man, you know, once you say something that you disagree with them, dude, they lay it on you. Oh, yeah. And I think that is a learned response by seeing outrage culture rewarded. You know, like I, I'm sure you've heard of that whole phenomenon of like virtue signaling, you know, where oh, it's something yeah. like, oh, yeah, you know, like I love I care about these people like using the bathroom, whatever, you know, and it's just something where it's like, oh, and I'm this good person. I'm scoring points here. You know, it's like this kind of almost worthiness contest, like who can kind of say the most. Who's like, the most altruistic person exactly. out there. Exactly. You know, but the problem is that leads to just kind of like empty rhetoric, you know, where it's something like, yeah, it's easy to say, um, you know, like, oh, like we should really kind of like help Syria right now, you know, but like it's not your ass, you know, going over there and like risking getting killed. You know, it's easy for you to tell someone to go over there risk their life. You and know, I'm, I'm going to put this out on the limb as well. Oh yeah, let's let illegal immigration come in. They're they're illegal. I mean, they're they're coming they're coming from poor countries. They they need help. They you know we are the richest country in the world now. Then I ask them, what if they move to your next door neighbor? What if they become your next door neighbor? You know, they it takes them a, a step back. Now I'm not saying that they're they're bad people or anything like that. But no, it's cha- it's going to change your neighborhood. It's going to change things for you. Now, if you're willing for that to be right there at your doorsteps, that's a whole different story, too. Actually, I mean, that NIMBY, the, the not in my backyard, you know, phenomena, you know, like that's here in L.A. You know, there was this kind of uh, famous case, you know, in Koreatown where they wanted to open up like a homeless shelter. Oh, um, yeah. See, the homeless yeah, like, problem here, too. Mm-hmm. So it's something where it would, they're trying to open it, I think, uh, near like Vermont and like 7th, Vermont 6th. So right near like Obi Bear, right near like, uh, I don't know if you've been to Kobo Wu, you know, like a lot of like great restaurants. And so, you know, the Korean American community, uh, the business owners, they really push back. They're just like, hey, you know, like this is going to hurt our business. Like, like we're all for helping, you know, this, this problem. Just not here. But yeah, just not here, you know. And it, it's just something where... Um, you know, there, there's an issue of justice, you know, especially in this case where, yeah, they're not trying to open one up in like Bel Air, you know. The whole reason why they're trying to open one up in Koreatown is because, uh, at, by and large, Asians and Asian Americans don't vote. And so Mayor Garcetti is just like, you know, fuck these guys, you know, like they're not voting for me anyway. So, you know what, let's just put it here. You know, like the rich donor class that I benefit from in Bel Air, I can't put it there. I'm not going to get reelected. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I say like it's a little more complicated because don't get me wrong, uh, you know, from the spirit of like, you know, when, you know, I want to help the homeless, I want to help refugees, I want to help, you know, like, immigrants, you know, like, don't get me wrong, my heart goes out to them, but, like, let's make sure the actions we're taking are actually helping them, you know, that's not some kind of this empty rhetoric that, you know. <laughs> because we, right now, we've been throwing tons of money at the homeless problem, and it's gotten only worse. You're right, uh, because, you know, the phenomena is the more we invest into homeless services, then it attracts more homeless people from around the country. Uh, and in fact, you know, there, there's been cases where they bus in, you know, other, other other states and cities bus in their homeless to Los Angeles. And I hear they pay people to bus them out, too. 
Exactly. You know, so it's, it's something where, you know, look, you know, I don't know the solution for this problem. You it's know, bigger than us. It's huge. You know, I don't think anyone knows the solution, but that's why I like the idea of UBI, you know, because or universal basic income, because this way, let the market solve it. Because, hey, you know, for all those people who are like, it's not fair that they give Jeff Bezos $1,000. It should be means tested. Well, you know what? If you don't want that thousand bucks, then, you know, you have an extra thousand bucks to donate. You know, yeah. you have an extra thousand bucks, you know, to give to me. <laughs> <laughs> or to our Patreon. Oh, yeah. There you go. There you go. Link is in the description below. In the description below. below. <laughs> yeah. Shameless plug. <laughs> well, you know, um, I'm glad you brought it back that back um i you know we do have a form of universal basic income right now oh do we we do where, where the fuck's my check <laughs> well that's because you work uh that's because you actually contribute to the economy <sighs> like a sucker uh, but um no i mean I, it's 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 called earned income tax credit uh got it so if you look at the basis of mm-hmm. earned income tax credit it's it, it when you know I don't think any law was made um, with uh, with malintent. Mm. I think most laws are made with good intentions, but unintended consequences. Okay, so uh, one of the base most uh, you know the strict ad thing um, UBI is going to disincentivize people from working. Mm. So what if we make sure that we only incentivize people who work? So if you work and your income is below a certain amount, during tax time, we're going to give you this much money back. Got it. So I have, I know clients and I have people who literally don't, I mean, they can't save any money Mm. and they delay a lot of their expenses until tax time Mm. when they file their tax return to get this check from the government. And the way it's set up is if you make, it looks at, uh, okay, first of all, there are income thresholds. So if you make below this income threshold, you get earned income tax credit. So after you file your taxes, you get this refund. So that's why last year, or this year during the government, after the government shutdown, the first thing they said was your earned income tax credit won't be, won't be received until the third week of February. And that's why people, some people, file so early I see. because they want to get that earned income tax credit. Mm. All right. So if you make us, once you make over that amount, it w- it's not a phase out. It's once you make over that amount, boom, you're done. No more t- tax credit mm. for you. And another part of that is that income threshold is increased and the amount you get back is increased if the number of people in your household increases. Yeah, so there's an incentive to have a lot of babies. So it's like, uh, I understand the spirit of the law is, hey, we want to reward people who are still working and we want to make sure that um, people who have more more family members to take care of, there's going to be more income tax credit back. Mm. But the, the, the result of it is very, very uh, unfortunate. No, that's true. I mean, you know, I mean, yes, the West does have this kind of like birth, you know, issue. But maybe that's a good issue, you know, because maybe we have too many people, you know, I, I think <laughs> no, I mean, to be fair, you know, like because um, here's the thing, you know, with just everyone having two kids, then then we're, it's like a, it leads to a slight population decline. And I think that's fine. You know, we're using so many resources as it is that 
you know, maybe that's a good thing. You know, I don't, I don't think this idea of like, let's, we're at 7 billion, let's get it to 8, 10. I don't know if that's such a great idea. You know, I mean, in some ways uh, that goes to like Andrew Yang's, one of Andrew Yang's points where it's like, you know, we're, we're using a lot of antiquated metrics to see like, you know, what we should be like shooting for, for example, like GDP, you know, like, Ooh, um, yes. and this is something where, and I think like population size is another, I don't necessarily think more population is better. Uh, that Zen Buddhist uh, center probably doesn't add to GDP. Uh, no, it does not, you know, but, you know, if there's a different kind of metric to uh, measure like spiritual health, you know, like, or friendships or community or mental health, mental health, then, you know, like, boom, you know, like that's, that's way up there. And um, I've never felt this more until I personally, now we're taking care of uh, our kid. Um, uh, Andrew Yang always says, you know, his, he has two kids and his, his wife decided to stay at home, take care of the two kids and GDP values her work at zero slacker <laughs> yeah come on she's so lazy come on do some work get back to work and i have friends who basically they actually have to put themselves out of the workforce to take care of the kids because child care is so expensive that it makes no sense for her to go work no that's very true you know and uh, and i think it's something where you know because look these this loss of eighty percent of jobs, like MIT, McKinsey, you know, they're saying it's happening in ten years. Like much smarter people than you or I or most people listening to this podcast. Sorry, Wendy, <laughs> <laughs> are saying this is like fact. Data is pointing this way. You know, it's not an opinion. And so once that happens, it's not just a financial impact, but it's like where are people going to find meaning, you know, to their lives? And so it's something where even philosophically. You know, this is where an interesting aspect of the presidency is more than just like some dude like making policy decisions, but he's kind of like a figurehead. He's like, because case in point, you know, like with, with, you know, Trump in office, it's like, and now everyone sees that and goes like, oh, you know what? You know, uh, this is the kind of world we live in. It's okay to lie, you know, because obviously there's no consequences to it. You know, like, uh, it's okay to <laughs> kind of grab pussies, you know, because ah. <laughs> you know, it's just something where it's like, you know, un he is just, just, just to clarify, it's not okay. No, no, definitely we, not. We, no. Shun we don't, we no, don't, no, 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 don't grab them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, but I think, but that, you know, the outrage as well that came out of that, it shows that the presidency oh. is more than, than just like some dude making policy decisions that, he is kind of a mirror, you know, to America and our culture and what our values are. And so it's something where, you know, Andrew Yang, uh, the fact that he's talking about, hey, man, like we got like a broken philosophy right now where like money, it's almighty dollar, you know, and it's something where, hey, let's be human beings first, like humanity first. Like that's one of his kind of like mantras. And so that that's another reason why I like the guy. You know, in fact, you, you mentioned his wife. I saw this interesting quote from his wife. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. And I think that kind of captures, like, what kind of man he is. And so um, so his wife, uh, you know, he met, her in, <laughs> he met her in college, uh, you know, after he graduated. So, you know, what's he doing in college? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, she said um, uh, he, uh, quote, he's very much after the truth of things and not preoccupied with how others think of him or perceive him. Uh, and now speaking about when she first met him, he seemed so earnest and genuine. Uh, I felt like he wore his heart on his sleeve, which was refreshing. I joke with him now even. It's like he had no game. 
<laughs> the game of no game. Yeah. <laughs> That's very Zen Buddhist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, he wasn't trying to game it in any way, and I really love that about him. And so, you know, this shows that, you know, that's actually one reason, like, we got a chance to actually meet him, and he just seemed like a really kind of genuine dude, you know, like, it didn't seem like he was trying to just say things to kind of sound right, like, he's kind of a dorky dude, he kind of has the vibe of, like, a, like, a science teacher, you know, he's just like, uh, what state has UBI? <laughs> Alaska! And how do they pay for it? Oil! What's the oil of the 21st century? Marijuana! <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's tech. <laughs> but I mean, like that kind of call and response, like, you know, that's some dorky stuff that comes from like a math class, but it's very endearing, you know, and I think that shows just like what kind of guy he is. And so, you know, I mean, even like I, I read this quote where like he's talking about, you know, he was reading the, like this Atlantic article that talked about how like power uh, causes brain damage. And how, like, um, you know, they actually power look at... Power causes... Oh, yeah, power. Having power. Oh. Uh, and he said... Uh, well, we can see that right now. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we see it? Where do we see it? Yeah. Um, but uh, he said, quote, uh, they actually looked at the physiology of people's brains who have been in positions of power, and it actually showed that their centers of empathy had eroded. Uh, that story actually had a profound effect on me. It was scientific, it was real, and explained a lot to me. Because I've met a lot of powerful people, and a lot of them have had what I call the force field, where you say something to them, and it doesn't really sink in. It's like things are bouncing off. I've always been conscious that I never want that force field. Wow. Wow. That's, that's powerful. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's the, the, kind, the guy who doesn't, who's, who's uh, suspicious of power is exactly the kind of guy we want in power. You know, we don't want some guy that loves power that only sees the good part of it. And that goes not just to, you know, whoever, you know, the current guy in the, the current administration, but even like some of these very strident kind of like left wing progressive folk, you know, it's something where it's like, whoa, you know, like, I don't want you bringing that anger, you know, into the Oval Office because now it just seems like uh, it's just going to it's going to be more and more divisive. Um, I feel like every single time I read a political uh, or, or, or a candidate's website, or I listen to their speech, it's all, we need to fight for it. We need to fight for this right. We need to fight for that. And yes, yeah, we do. I understand that spirit. I understand how it worked in the 70s, you know, like, yeah, we got to fight for your right, you know. Um, I feel like we have to move past that now. It's like, hey, what works? No, that's true. You know, because I, I just feel like when everyone's just like yelling at each other, you know, like that, that, that conversation is going nowhere, you know, and, and that's actually one of the onuses for us starting this podcast, because we just want a space for like civil conversation uh, where we can actually talk about ideas, we can engage respectfully, you know, like we want to model the kind of conversations, you know, we want everyone to be having, you know, like there's no reason, it, like, I mean, Barack Obama said this, you know, we can disagree without being disagreeable. And, you know, it's just, it's just sad that, you know, trend, that trend is going the opposite direction right now. Um, I was talking to my friend about uh, these political issues, and she goes, uh, yeah, you know what? I think the country is divided into three parts. Okay. You know, and I just want to get rid of the middle. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's not right. You You're know, right. That's not See, right. And I don't like that. I mean, and also, you know, there's a bunch of people who are like, oh, let's get, do away with the electoral college. Because, hey, you know, like the Electoral College is all messed up. You get the popular vote and you lose. 
But I don't know. This is going to be an unpopular opinion. Uh, I don't think so. I think we need to keep it because it provides the voice for people who don't have that voice. If if we got rid of the Electoral College, all the presidents are just going to focus on L.A. and, and, and New York. And all the people in the middle are going to lose out. They're not going to have a voice. And I'm very much against that. I mean, I think every that's if you look at what America is, it's an idea, you know. So I'm going to take a slightly different position. Uh, so I'm, you know me, I'm into, I'm getting into Buddhism a little bit mm-hmm. these days. They, mm-hmm. they also have like this middle path. And so for me, it's not like abolishing the Electoral College or keeping it, but it's just like kind of slightly changing it. You know, I think we got to remove the kind of winner take all aspect of it. So it's not like, oh, you know, you get 51% of the vote, you know, then you get all these electoral votes, you know, it's like, no, I think it should be proportional. And that way there's still an incentive to go to California you know, to go to Texas, to go to New York, because it's not just a matter of like winning it, but you want to, the margin in which you win mm. it is meaningful. Mm. And so, because yeah, I mean, if it's like 51-49, you know, but that's what really like pushes someone over, like, eh, I don't know, you know, like I, I just feel like they're, I agree, like we, we shouldn't just abolish it altogether or else, you know, these, these people from like the smaller states are going to have less of a say. And if anything, that's going to incentivize more and more of kind of the brain drain that moves to the coast. And so, yeah. you know, uh, to kind of help preserve these communities, you know, you know, we need to somehow at least, if not incentivize people to live there, remove the disincentives to live there. And I think uh, even um, UBI can do that, you know, um, because I, I've heard that like Andrew Yang does not want to have it dependent on like, like lifestyle, like lifestyle costs. Uh, I don't know what the you know correct term is. So it's not like CPI index. CPI index. Yeah, you know, yeah. thank you, Jack. Uh, it's not like oh, I live in like New York City, Manhattan, the most expensive. So I should get like two thousand dollars a month. It's like no, you still get the same thousand. And if that's not enough, uh, you should you have other options. Oh yeah, other you should places. think about moving somewhere else. <laughs>